visit our website and see it all on bulletin, and that would be terrific. Maybe now I'm online. But uh, as I was saying, uh, thanks, Matt. A couple announcements. Uh, make sure that you, uh, young adults, make sure that you talk to uh, the Watts, Matt Watt, who is standing right here, and Anne, who plays the violin, for more information about the Cross Conference uh, that is going to be happening in February, and they would love to talk to you about that. For everything else, I encourage you to check out our online um, our website to see our online bulletin as well. If you have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do, please open them to John. We'll be in John chapter 2 together as we just come together to continue to worship our awesome God. Let me ask you this question. Um, how do we know, how do we know, how do people know around you what you're passionate about? When you come and have a conversation with someone, as they're talking to you, as they walk away, if I were to go and talk to that individual, how would they know what you're passionate about? You know, I try to take an interest in, in everything for the sake of the conversation. It, it may not be something that I'm interested in, but I'll sit there and I'll talk to you about it because we can have a conversation. But if, if, we, if in that conversation something comes up that I am passionate about, you're going to be able to tell. You're going to be able to tell what I am passionate about. So let me ask you again, what are you passionate about? And how would someone know what you are passionate about? In John chapter 2, as we are continuing this chapter from last week, we looked at the wedding in Cana uh, and how, how Jesus turned water into wine. A fascinating, amazing display of who he is and, and what he has come to do for us uh, ultimately through the cross. And as we continue, in verse 13, we see that Jesus begins to cleanse the temple. We see the passion of Jesus shining through. You know, in Sunday school growing up, I don't think we ever talked about this. We kind of talked about it all. Jesus went into a temple and he, and he kind of uh, flipped some tables maybe. But when, we, when I think back to how I uh, experienced Sunday school, it was often about how Jesus was meek and mild. And that's true. We see over and over again that the Bible clearly states that Jesus is meek and mild. We see in Matthew how his yoke is light and his burden is light. And to come to him, all who are tired and weary. But I think we overemphasize that quite a bit, especially when we come to a passage like we see in John chapter 2, verse 13. Because in John chapter 2, we see another side of who Jesus is. We see him entering into this this temple. He's not the type of Jesus who is weak and uh, even effeminate and, 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 or even that type of person that we would never pick for a sports team because they're kind of cowardly hanging out in the corner like often I did. He's different than what we see and often what we picture. He's not the Jesus who's sitting on a, a, a green meadow hill, uh, you know, sitting there with a guitar playing kumbaya with all the little lambs around him. There's a different Jesus that we're seeing. Not a different Jesus. We're seeing a more full picture of who he is. And ultimately, we're seeing his passion. And we're seeing what guides that passion. We will see a Jesus, and, and we'll see his actions being guided by a single passion. And as we do that, we will see who he is more and what that means for us who are his disciples. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in John chapter 2. We're starting at verse 13. The word of the Lord says this. 
the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my house, my father's house, a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus in his, on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we continue to worship you through the opening of your word, through the preaching of your word, God, I pray that you are indeed glorified. God, we're here in this different situations and, and different times, and, and Lord, I pray that even in the midst of this longing to be together, to gather together, that you would use this time to glorify your name and to edify your people. Lord, I think of all the other churches here in London who are in the same situation we are. And as they gather online or in smaller, smaller, smaller groups, Lord, I just pray that you would use them, that you would use your church here in London to glorify your name and to grow your kingdom. God, I specifically think of Redemption Bible Chapel and, and Pastor Norm as, as they gather very much in the same way we are, that you would use them as they seek to be faithful disciples who are making disciples of Jesus Christ in their area. God, will you use your church as a bright, shining light in this dark, dark world? And Lord, as we continue to worship you through the opening of your word, God, I pray that you would use it, that you would be glorified in it. And I want to speak of you and praise you. And God, there is no way that I can do this on my own. So will you use this to, will you give me uh, help? Help me, Lord, by your spirit to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon, God, to bring glory to your name joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. So in chapter 2, we see a different part, a different side of who Jesus is. Yes, he is the meek and mild that was presented to us in Sunday school, but there's more to it. There's a passion, there's a zeal that is shining through as we look at who Jesus is and how his word is revealing who he is to us. The Jesus that often we think about when we close our eyes is not the Jesus that's necessarily being portrayed here in John chapter 2. We, we would have a hard time even seeing how Jesus is portrayed in books of the Bible like Revelation and how he judges the nations. But here we see that Jesus has a zeal for true worship. 
In verses 13 to 17, the setting is being set. It is the time of the Passover of the Jews that was at hand. As John takes uh, takes a very pointed amount of time to describe the setting that is happening. So all the male Jews were required to go to Jerusalem during a number of different feasts. One of them was the Passover. And they would come into Jerusalem and they would sacrifice a lamb, or, or uh, an animal of some kind. See, the Passover was one of the greatest of the Jewish festivals. It, co- it commemorated the exodus when God delivered the Israelites from bondage into Egypt. So think about what all these people are selling and, and the items that are happening. They're, 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 they might be thinking that, hey, I'm, I'm providing a service. I'm providing a service for all these people that are traveling from all over the place, and I'm providing a service for these people who can't carry a, 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 a lamb from Timbuktu on their shoulders all the way to Jerusalem. Uh, I don't think Timbuktu is in the Middle East, but you understand. But they're providing a, a service. But in verse 14, we come and we see that there's a problem here. See, in the temple, it says, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers were sitting there. So think about this. Think about the setting. Close your eyes and think about the setting. Here is the temple. In the temple, there are a number of different courts that are reserved for different parts of the society, right? The outer court was actually reserved for Gentiles, those who were not Jews, so God, all the time, had this, this plan of making sure that all people could come and worship him. But what is happening with these people who think they're providing a service is that they're setting up, not outside the temple, but inside the temple, in the temple and the courts of the Gentiles. See, Jesus is mad, not because of money being exchanged. So next time you think about having a bake sale, don't bring up this verse, a bake sale in the church. But what is mad, what Jesus is making, uh, what he's making a point of is that people were being hindered from worshiping who God is and who, God, who is God. He has a zeal for worship. The wrath of Jesus wasn't directed towards the people who were worshiping or leading it, but against those who were detracting from it. The motives and the significance of the action are hinted in these following verses. Jesus' passion and zeal was found in what the purpose of the temple was. It was the purpose of the temple was for people to come to God, and people were keeping people from God. As he says in verse 16, my father's house is, is not a house of trade. See, God's house was never supposed to be a place of trade. It had one, uh, it had come to that point. And Jesus was there to remove all barriers to the true worship of the true God. And Jesus had come to open up the way to worship, for true worship of the one and only true God. So why does Jesus act this way? You know, sometimes we think, oh, you shouldn't be angry. Well, why shouldn't you be angry? Jesus was clearly angry. And it goes back to the first question I was asking you. What are you passionate about? See, Jesus was so passionate for the kingdom of God and for the gospel, why he came to die, for the worship, for the true worship of God. And when he saw people detracting from him, he dealt with it. He did something about it. That's what spurred him on. 
It was a righteous anger for worship that was due to the God who created the heavens and the earth. The temple was to be concentrated, consecrated, sorry. It was to be set apart as holy because it was the house of God. And these transactions weren't supposed to be happening in the temple. They were detracting from the worship of God and the people conducting their business within the temple were misusing the dwelling space of God to worship other things. See, Jesus cleansed the temple not just once but twice if we actually look through the whole Gospels. And this time at the beginning and again at the end of his ministry, the temple courts were, were, were to be a place where scriptures were being read. It was where sacrifices of offering were to be done to God as they reflected upon how God has delivered and provided for them throughout their whole existence. It was a place where the temple was a place where people were to come and they were to pray. And we got to see what Jesus is seeing. He, he, as he's looking out over the great court of the Gentiles, he would have seen sheep and oxen and fowl and everything that goes with them and that smell and all that noise. There would have been the bartering and the haggling over all of these things. The, the one that they would have, uh, what would have been impossible to do would have actually been the worship of the true God. And as verse 17 comes, his disciples remembered it as it was written. See, after Jesus' resurrection, when he rose from the dead, marking the sacrifice was accepted by God, the disciples looked back at what had happened and what was going on in their lives, and they remembered what the word of the Lord says in, in, in Psalm 69, verse 9. Jesus shares the same passion and zeal that King David had in this song. This was a passion that was consuming his very life. The true worship of God. So what consumes your life? What passions dominate you? And here's a better question. What would you give your blood and treasure for? Now let me follow up with another question. Is whatever you're passionate about, is it worth your life? See, when we look at Jesus, when we see the kingdom of God and the gospel, we see that it is worthy of my life and your life. Have you, have you been gripped by the knowledge that there is only one name by which man may be delivered from? As one commentary put it, the yawning cavern of hell's dark hole. Love it. Do you see that there is only one way to know God? Only one way to find a soul-deep satisfaction. One way to live a life worth everlasting deliverance. Do you see what Christ offers you today? See, disciples are learners of Jesus. And as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are to be passionate people. It never made sense to me why the church can be some of the most dispassionate people in the world. Passionate for the things of God, though. Passionate for the things of God. I, I don't know how many times I'll be talking to, to, to men and, and they're getting excited about um, their football team. And, and, like, they're legitimately excited. And then you go watch, like, the Super Bowl with them and they're, like, standing up and yelling and screaming at the screen and, like, passion of, uh, is just flowing through. 
And then they come to church and talk of things of God, and it's like they're, it doesn't matter. So the same individual can't come to me and say, oh, it's just not my personality. No, 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 no. I just saw you watch a football game. It is within your personality to be excited. What are you passionate about? See, we need to be passionate of, of things of God, passionate in our love of good and our hatred of evil, passionate for our love of God and our love of others. It's right here that we see the Lamb of God revealed as the lion. This wasn't a sinful outburst of temper, but the just wrath of a holy God upon those who were detracting from true worship. Does God care about how he is worshipped? If he didn't, this passage wouldn't be there. He cares deeply about how he is worshipped. And what a church does in worship reveals what she thinks about God. So what if a church shows its passion in other things rather than the passion of the kingdom of God and of the gospel? A church that worships through dry and joyless rituals shows its belief in an absent God. A church that stirs up emotional enthusiasm and fills the worship service with entertainment believes in a weak God who needs our spiritual help. A church focused on money reveals a God who is unable to meet our needs. Or how about a church that builds up their own celebrities and takes away from the glory of God? But what if, what if today, Noah, you and I, as the church gathered here online and what we have here in our auditorium, what if we were passionate about lifting our hearts in praise? What does this say about our God? Maybe that he is worthy and, and great. What if we were passionate about humbly confessing our sins? It would show that the church believes in a holy God, but that he is also forgiving. What if the church was passionate about prayer? Would it not show that the church believes in the power of God and love? What if the church was passionate about reading and the teaching of the word of God? Would it not show that the church, that our church believes that God has revealed himself and that the word is true and has the power to save? And what if, if we worshiped according to what the Bible says instead the fads that often come and go? It says that God matters more than worldly approval and that he, his ways are trustworthy and right. In 30 years, I'm going to look back at this video and I'm going to say, what am I wearing? Right? What are we passionate about? What does all of this do as we seek to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ? What would all of this do as we go out as individuals and as a community to point people to Jesus? Jesus' passion comes from who he is and a desire to be worshipped because the kingdom of God and the gospel are worth everything we have. What does our passion show about who we are? What does our zeal say about who we are? 
You know, we could do simple things to help each other and point each other. Simple questions like when we're interacting with one another, hey, you know, Matt, what are you learning about who God is as you spend time in his word? You know what, Matt, that is awesome. You know, let's, let's, let's pray about this. Oh, you got, or, 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 or what's on your heart as, as you're reading this? What is God exposing about who you are and who he is? Oh, you know, that's amazing. Let's, let's pray about this. You see what happens as we interact and we change even just the practical aspects of our lives and how we view things. Our passions change. I'm not saying that every single time you can't talk about football, okay? Or board games or, or whatever it may be, right? Like, I have a kid right now who is all about playing Smash Brothers. I've schooled them in it. It's okay. I know. But it's, it's, it's an amazing time. Like, it doesn't mean that we can't have fun conversations and joke around and talk about bikes or electronics or, or, or I don't know, makeup or, or, or fashion, right? None of those things I really care about. I'll smile and nod. But it doesn't mean that the core of our conversations, what is, it does show about our, who, what our passions are. And as we continue on in verses 18 to 22, we see that Jesus has authority over, over everything. This is who he is. The, 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 the amazing thing is that, so he's done these things. He's flipped the tables. He's cast out the, the money changers and all the animals, and now is quiet. And now the Jews said to him in verse 18, they come and they say this very funny thing. What sign do you show us for doing these things? You know what's interesting is that they don't doubt that Jesus should have done this. They doubt that he has the authority to do it, which means that they thought that they should have done something about it. But they come to Jesus and they say, what authority? And Jesus says, my authority is this, that they will de- I, you destroy this temple because he's in proximity to the temple. He had just been there. He's there. He says, and he says these words, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews naturally begin to think, well, because of the proximity, well, he's talking about this temple right here, this beautiful building, and it took 40-odd years to build. How, how could that possibly happen? How could he possibly do that? But Jesus wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his body, as it says in verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. See, Jesus' authority comes from the fact of who he is. He is the Lamb of God. He is the one who will pay the price for their sins. For all of those who repent and believe in the gospel that Christ died for their sins, that we have sinned against the Holy God, and that because of our sin, because of our rebellion against him, we deserve hell. But God in his grace steps down from his throne and he adds to himself humanity. Jesus Christ adds himself humanity. He's born of the Virgin Mary. He grows up and he, he does ministry on this world and he dies. Why does he die? As Matt was talking about just moments before, he dies for our sin so that anyone who confesses and believes that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior will be saved. That is where his authority lies. That is in who he is. The Jews may have misunderstood. The disciples didn't really get the connection until later. But his authority is based upon who he is and what he will do for us. 
as he dies on the cross. He points to himself. This is important for us to understand. See, as we think about our lives, um, as we think about, it is, you know, you're saved by faith. You're, you're, you're saved by believing in the gospel. But the root of that, the foundation of that belief is the fact that Jesus not only died, but that he rose again. We have to believe that. That's a foundation. And it's important to, to dive in and to believe that and to see the evidence of it. There's a story of a lawyer who actually denied that Jesus' resurrection was true. He was this great jurist. Uh, he wrote this book called Treaties of the Law of Evidence. He, he was a professor and one of the founders of Harvard Law School, Simon Green, Greenleaf. And he actually went. He was this amazing lawyer. actually went and he tried to disprove it. And as a lawyer, he comes at it as a lawyer would. He's looking for evidence, witnesses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He actually faced the New Testament claims, and as he begins to conclude that the witnesses were so reliable that he would have to accept them in the court of law. We have to know the word of God. We have to know it. Yes, Jesus' authority is based upon who he is and what he has done for us, and we are saved by that, but we live in a pluralistic age. It is unbelievably pluralistic where religion no longer matters anymore, right? So how do I fight all of those attacks as an individual? I need to know the word of God and see how he has always kept his promises, that God has always accomplished what he has said he will do. Yes, know some other philosophical, apologetical arguments, but to know the word of God, to see how Jesus did exactly this, he did die, and three days later, he did rise again. It is our hope. So just as jurors in a trial have a duty to believe sound evidence, the evidence of the resurrection morally, morally obliges us to believe in Jesus. I was watching a show not too long ago, and they kept talking about the myth of Jesus. It was a drama show, you know, and I just found it interesting. It's like, myth of Jesus? Nobody denies that Jesus existed. Historically, he, the, he's there. What they're denying is that Jesus rose again. Because Jesus rising again proves everything that we see from John 1 up to now. See, Jesus' authority is rooted in what he does and who he is. And that ultimately comes from his passion. But as we continue on in verses 23 to 24, this is scary. Jesus knows the hearts of humanity. Most relationships are built upon mutual admiration, right? So uh, Mark and I, uh, we can have a conversation and a relationship uh, because we admire a certain aspect of one another, right? Friendship, C.S. Lewis said, starts with that statement, you too? Not the band. But this is not true when it comes to mankind and Jesus. Though people were praising Jesus because of all of the miracles that he had done, he had just turned water in Hawaiian, right? He had just flipped tables over, like he had such great authority. He was not willing to commit himself to them. 
The reason, John says, centers on what Jesus knows about man. As verse 23 says, many believed in his name when they saw the, the signs that he was doing. There were signs that weren't even in the narrative. As we see later on in John, as John finishes off his account, he actually says that there are many other things that are not written in this account. In John 21, verse 25. But we know that this is a superficial belief that these people have. Because just come and see, because they are just coming to see all of the fancy things that Jesus has done. Think about that as a church, right? We can talk about all day long about stage design and, and looks and our awesome streaming stuff and all of these things, right? But they're all just glitter. If we aren't founded on Jesus, if we don't proclaim simply Jesus, but see, Jesus knew the heart of those who were following him. As he says in verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself. The same root word that we see at the beginning of 23 of believe is the same root word that we see of entrusts. He also displayed the supernatural knowledge important for his redemptive work that, that, that confirmed his deity and the Father's endorsement of his claims and mission. See, what does John mean by all of this? Why would John take so much time to... to to tell us how Jesus knows the mind of man. In what sense did Jesus not entrust himself to those who were believing in him because of these signs? See, God knows about us indifferent from our knowledge of each other and even ourselves. The Bible says man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This makes it hard for us to really know other people, right? It's difficult when you think about it. It's difficult to make uh, wise decisions in hiring because someone might look good. They put themselves well. They put together themselves well. They have a great resume. They answer all the questions well and still be completely different from what he or she appeared to be. Or think about... Uh, those executives who uh, uh, suddenly are, are, are running away with a bag full of money from their company that they just stole. People always comment on how much they trusted that individual and how well they thought of, of him or her, and it just doesn't work. All along, that individual was a thief. But God comes along and he says this in Acts 15.8, God knows the heart. He searches the heart, as Romans 8, 27 says, and knows what lies within. Think about that. The darkest corner of your life, God knows it. There's no hiding. He knows. He knows it all. As Hebrews 4 says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That is heavy. But Jesus can do the same uh, is yet another proof of who he is. He is indeed God. He is God. And John says that he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And what does this all mean? John explains that it was because Jesus knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about them, that he holds back 
who he is and telling them more and entrusting himself to him. See, he knows who would receive and who would reject him. Even if those who were not given to him by the Father were temporarily attracted to him because of all the signs, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew the status of their hearts. This is a hard part to wrap our minds around. Not all those who say they believe, believe. Not everyone sees the kingdom of God and the gospel as worth, uh, worthy of their lives or any part of it. Passion drops. Niceness doesn't get you into the kingdom of God. So what, you may be asking yourself. God's kingdom and the gospel are worth your life. What consumes your life, I ask you? What passion dominates you? For what would you give your blood and your treasure? Is what you, is what you are devoted to worth your life? You know, on the romance movies or shows, there's always that guy who says, I would give my life for you. Right? But as Christians, we're called to do the very same. Jesus himself says, if anyone is to uh, find their life, they have to give it up. He calls us to take up our cross daily and follow him. The kingdom of God is worth our passion because as Jesus will say, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Because to follow Jesus is to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow Jesus. It's worth it because the kingdom of God is the greatest treasure you can have. A treasure that doesn't fade, a treasure that doesn't rust, a treasure that doesn't rot. It is an everlasting treasure. It is a treasure being made right before a holy God and finally being able to worship him as you were created to worship him. See, as we look at this account of, of the passion of Jesus Christ, we see that the kingdom of God is worth it. Jesus' passion was rooted in who he is. He is God. He has a passion for how he is to be worshipped. He does control life and death, and he knows the heart of man. Yet in all of this, the passion leads him to the cross. So what are the outward signs that distinguish you from whom Jesus would and those whom he would not entrust himself to? Who are you? God's kingdom and the gospel are worth your life. Have you been gripped by the knowledge that there is only one name by which man may be delivered from the yawning cavern of hell's dark hole. Do you see that there is only one way to know God? Only one way to find soul-deep satisfaction. Only one way to live a life worth uh, everlasting deliverance. Ponder these ministries. As one commentary put it, roll around on your tongue the new wine of the way God has fulfilled his promises in Jesus. Savor the fullness, the depth, and the surprising and fresh glory of what God has done. Drink deeply of God's glory and be intoxicated with the goodness of what he has brought to pass. As 2 Corinthians 1 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. 
That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. The kingdom of God is worth it. Dwell upon that. All his passions are yes and amen in Jesus. This is better than any novel, better than any drama, better than any fantasy. This is the true tale of how the prince born with neither throne nor crown showed that he loved his bride enough to die for her. And by dying for her, he regained his rightful throne, was crowned as king, and liberated his bride from the oppressive powers holding her captive. There is no better story than the true one. The kingdom of God is worth your passion. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And I thank you for the reminder of who Jesus is in this passion. God, I pray that as disciples, we would uh, mirror the same passion that Jesus has here, that we would have a passion to worship you as a church, that we would rest in you knowing that you are the God who, who, who stepped down from his throne to, to be born of the Virgin Mary, who, who died and three days later rose again. And you know our hearts, yet you still save us. Lord, I pray that we would rest in you. And God, for those who aren't resting in you, I pray that you would convict them by your spirit, Lord, of their desperate need of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Amen.